and welcome to another episode of Right Care at Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And I'm Amanda Comer, a nurse practitioner and the system director for advanced practice providers. And today we are happy to welcome once again, Dr. Steve Threckold, an infectious disease doctor to come on and talk to us a little bit about COVID-19. Hey guys, thanks for having me. All right, so, you know, we are in May of 2022. What is the current state of the pandemic? What are you seeing out there? Um, what is transmission like in our community? Yeah, I, I think we're stuck somewhere between the movies Groundhog Day and Armageddon. I'm not sure exactly exactly where, but, um, you know, it's interesting because the transmission has been going up for a month now and very appreciably so. I mean, I mean, we get a lot of calls day in, day out. I mean, I'm seeing offices having to close and, and nearly my own uh, for uh, for COVID cases, doctors, nurses and other members of the healthcare team are being infected. Um, and so there's a great increase in, in transmission. There's no question about that. Um, thankfully, that is not being followed up much as we saw in other parts of the country with a lot of hospitalizations. Now the hospitalizations have gone up simply because you're going to have some people test positive because there's a lot of, there are a lot of cases out there, but they're not a lot of COVID admissions. Um, we've seen one or two deaths locally. Um, it still does happen, but I think the big deal now is that if you're unprotected, unvaccinated or immunosuppressed and the like, it is going to, with an ever increasingly contagious virus, uh, more efficiently hunt you down. So it, it, it remains, as we've seen since the early part of the Omicron uh, outbreak, it remains a weirdly more dangerous time for you because you're still potentially at risk. The virus is not that much more, uh, that much less virulent. It's just that there's more immunity out there. And if you can't get that immunity because of your own sort of uh, immune status, then you remain at risk potentially, and everybody else is not as excited about that anymore. Uh, and that's understandable. Uh, it's even in some ways appropriate, but compared to a month or two ago, we're kind of in a worse spot for you if you are an at-risk person. So you have to continue, I think, to be somewhat careful. And by extension, those of us who are around loved ones, family members, uh, even people at work, with those folks who are at risk have to try to help look out for those people because th th there is an efficiency to this virus that is very impressive. So you talked about the unvaccinated population. Um, who are we seeing getting sick? Those with comorbidities, the young, the old, prior infection? What does that look like? Yeah, I think in some ways it's uh, it's similar. It's just we're seeing a lot fewer of, of the people making it to the hospital. There's partial immunity, even those people with impaired immune systems. They many have been vaccinated um, and, uh, and, and a lot have had the infection. All of that contributes to some protection, like I say, probably more so than the virus being a lot more mild-mannered, actually, necessarily. But the problem is that we're playing at kind of a, I mean, the immunity is waning, and it's waning really in all of us, and that becomes a more important situation in those over 60, 65, those with immune suppression, because they don't have as much to begin with. Um, and so, it, the problem with this is, is that everybody's immunity is different at baseline. Our immunity is uh, approaches unique. We're all different in our capacity. So even large studies 
you're not comparing apples and apples here. And then you take that along the fact that, uh, you know, everybody's immunity is waning uh, more so and more rapidly with coronaviruses in general, all of them, and this one included than a lot of other viruses that we're used to thinking about. Um, and then other kind of problems, you're kind of playing three-dimensional chess and low lighting on a rotating board. I mean, it's very hard to kind of know what's going on. And so we saw, for example, those people who were immune suppressed and unvaccinated, they would have the really bad part of the infection, the lung involvement, the deadly kind of stuff happened day seven to 10, sometimes longer than that when in immunosuppressed people. We still can see that, um, and we've seen a couple, but they're more rare. But but people are still getting sick. I mean, people are still having fever and cough and feeling rotten. Uh, it's just thankfully that few of those people are deteriorating into um, into those really uh, bad portions. Now, I would caution because a lot of folks out there uh, have sort of come to the idea that, well, we should give things like uh, the medications like Paxlovid and the like to those people who are sick. And that's not true that you're how sick you are during the first two or three days of this illness correlates very well with your likelihood of going over the cliff or the falls day seven to 10 or 14. Um, so you really probably your, your decision to give one of those medications should be really independent of what they feel like in the beginning of their symptoms. Um, you should if it should be based on their risk factors for developing the disease independent of that sort of thing. And. So you mentioned who was getting sick with this, and, and we all have different immunity. But what about those that got Omicron? You know, just a, a couple of months ago, really uh, feels like a long time ago. But are are you seeing patients with prior Omicron get this new wave of COVID? Yeah, we are. I mean, again, thankfully they're they're not getting as ill. I think those people particularly aren't getting as ill. But I think this virus, unfortunately, is beginning to settle into the pattern of its older sisters. Um, uh, and not to discriminate on gender, brothers, whatever, um, but uh, the, the four pre-existing coronaviruses in the population, which cause mild illness, common colds in almost everybody, um, their immunity is very short-lived. And so people can get those, those viruses again a year later, and you couple the fact that there are four of them, uh, you can get a lot of coronavirus infections out there that are mild. Um, but this is starting to settle into that too. So we're seeing people get covid two and three times a year. Um, and the folks that hadn't gotten it since Delta or previously might be in store for potentially more uh, more serious illness. Um, but this virus is ever creeping uh, away from our immunity. The reason I think that's important is that, again, it's not necessarily a less intrinsically virulent virus. So we're somewhat at the mercy for what comes next in the way of variants, because um, it could be that the next variant becomes much more resistant to our past immunity. And that's the kind of thing that you really fear to happen. We don't know that it's gonna, but it's the sort of thing that if you get that, then all of a sudden you become more virulent, not necessarily because it's intrinsically more dangerous, but because it escapes our immune protection. And then you start talking about turning the, the clock a year or two. And that's what we all want to avoid. We want to knock down transmission so that we knock down new variants and we want to have better medicines and uh, and better treatments and preventions for that sort of thing. So you alluded to treatment when you spoke of Paxlovid. Has treatment changed or are there other options? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that um, the, the treatment for people in the hospital that get sick hasn't really changed much. Um, that's kind of weird. Now, there are a couple of medicines that are sort of exciting, one with some ties locally, uh, at least to Memphis, um, a new medication that they had to stop the trial uh, based on its increased efficacy in people who are already sick and people who are already in the hospital. But that's not out yet. It's being it's being uh, looked at by the FDA. Um, but in terms of 
pre-hospitalization, people are not terribly sick yet, obviously we have a lot of new possibilities. As monoclonal antibodies are waning away, and we really only have one that's uh, that's particularly effective anymore with the new variants, uh, we have the oral medication advent, um, and that is Paxlovid being the most uh, common one utilized now. It's the most effective. It's 88 plus percent effective at decreasing hospitalizations and death in aggregate of those who are at the greatest risk. Uh, it's an interesting group. They, they studied over a thousand people and, and over a thousand placebo. Um, with uh, with the unvaccinated high risk people, older age group, diabetes, immune suppression, all those people. And that's the, the most unfriendly population for a medication test there can be. And it cut their death rate by 88 percent. So that's an extraordinarily effective uh, result. And so we do have that probably as the number one uh, really recommended therapy by the NIH guidelines. And now, thankfully, it's, you know, it's, it is more available. So it's very, uh, it's very effective. One thing that is underutilized, and we can talk more about the Paxlovid, but it's Achilles heel is medication interaction. So there are still things out there that, has, that have not taken off very well, but that could be very effective and that we've utilized in smaller numbers. For example, IV remdesivir. If somebody is a transplant patient and some of their medicines you really care, or maybe a heart rhythm patient, you really can't crowbar Paxlovid into their regimen safely, then you could give them three daily doses of, of remdesivir intravenously as an outpatient. You have to be set up to do that. We are in our system uh, potentially capable to do that. It can be a little bit tricky, but that can be the sort of thing that you can utilize to protect those people. That, that so, so we do have options, options that we would have dearly loved to have earlier on in this. When you're talking about taking those people who are unvaccinated, high risk, and cutting their mortality by 90%, you would have turned this sort of thing into the flu uh, early on had we had that, rather than, than not just staring down the barrel, but having passed a million deaths in the United States, which is an unfathomable number, I think, to most of us uh, sitting back and thinking about this at the beginning of the pandemic. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about Paxlovid. It's been a little while since we've discussed it. Um, you mentioned that not it's not necessarily the the patients presenting uh, severity that gets them, you know, approved really for the Paxlovid. It, it's really approved for those that are high risk for progressing to severe disease. But I was looking through that list that the uh, CDC has out there for those, and it's almost everybody in <laughs> Memphis. I mean, physical inactivity was one of the risk factors. Physical <laughs> inactivity. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Yeah. BMI greater than 30. Um, yeah. You know, diabetes, all of those age, you know, greater than 65 and, you know, cancer, immunocompromised are the obvious ones. But who are we really prescribing it for? Who are we reserving it for? Because with that list, I could make an excuse to prescribe it to anybody. Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And it's really one of the harder things you, you really can. I mean, even hypertension, they'll say, well, and, and I think the FDA was purposely vague, even even in those individual categories. They said this could be a potential problem. So they were very open ended to allow uh, for the fact that they didn't need to revamp this list every two weeks, which clearly they are not capable of doing. Um, and, and it's not to, not it's not even criticism. That'd be hard to do. So um, I think part of it, I think what's clear 
is would, would be those who are you know, over 65 and that kind of age group. Those people who suffered, uh, you know, the vast majority of the deaths from COVID, for example, would be in the over 65. It's 80 some odd percent uh, of deaths were in people over 65. So clearly they fit into the category. Clearly people who are significantly immunosuppressed, organ transplant and the like. And, then you, get, and you get into that gray area, you know, people who might be on a lesser immunosuppressive kind of regimen, people in the shoulder age groups. Um, and again, even down to hypertension itself is listed as something that you could do. Um, and I think you just have to have a conversation between the provider and that patient there, because every drug has a risk. I mean, I mean, Paxlovid has proven to be quite, uh, quite safe. Uh, there's some taste issues, sometimes some diarrhea, but the main thing is medication interactions. Most of those medication interactions can be kind of circumnavigated and, and you can either hold some of the medicines. If it's a cholesterol medicine, nobody died of holding five days of cholesterol medicines. But some with long-acting effects, like amiodarone, for example, in folks with significant heart arrhythmias, you really have a hard time getting around that one. Um, and I've had some difficulties. I've had some unexpectedly impressive drug interactions uh, with Paxlovid um, uh, and some other agents. So I think you have to be careful to look over that list of interactions if you're the provider to make sure you're doing something safe because you could fall back on that remdesivir three-daily dosing as well if you have something like normal renal function. Um, and so... I think you just have to look very carefully about that. And then it comes down to the discussion with the patient. You have to say, look, you're in a high risk group, but you're fully vaccinated. And sometimes, it, honest to gosh, it comes down to what what's going to let them sleep at night. And, and because you're talking about dealing uh, with two relatively small risks. Obviously, there's a low risk if you're if you're doing your homework at giving that drug. Uh, and there's not a high risk in some of those people uh, that we're talking about on the on the fringes of, uh, of being high risk. Um, and so you just have to talk about with that person. And, and every person, I think, will have a different risk benefit tolerance. And I think you just have to have, to have that conversation in some of those folks. And you mentioned it was easier to get. Are you still having to call around and find a pharmacy that has it? Or do you just send it to any pharmacy that the patient prefers? Um, I still look, um, and and I think you published before a site um, that that really is very good at that. It'll show you every pharmacy that has it, when their shipment was. Uh, did that yesterday, and, and I'll just I, I literally will log on to that if it's somebody that I'm talking to on the phone, and I'll say where do you live, and I'll look and and look at that pharmacy, and it will show me who has it. But obviously, we've gone from just having the three Walmart pharmacies in town. I think it was to, uh, you know, the one yesterday was, okay, here's the Kroger on Forest Hill Irene. And, and so that we have a lot more choices and there's a lot of drug available out there. Where that becomes interesting, I think most of all is um, some people, for example, are prescribing it just in case. Uh, you know, if you go out of town or we're gonna give it to your mother-in-law or father-in-law because they're high risk and in case they get it. The problem is that you do have to have a positive test to qualify for the emergency use authorization. This is not fully FDA approved. So you theoretically are violating kind of federal regulations by doing that. I'm neither encouraging or discouraging that, um, but you have to be a little careful about that. I think we, you know, one hopes that that stuff will be relaxed pretty soon as the supply. I mean, I really, really uh, try to advise people not to try to do that at first because there wasn't enough to go around for the people with the positive tests. You had to quite literally look and see when the shipments were coming in, have somebody time their phone call to, to Walmart. And so that that was a problem. That's not a problem anymore. So one hopes that that some of those uh, restrictions will, will be ever uh, increasingly kind of relaxed along the way now. So we've heard the term Paxlovid rebound. What does that mean? 
Yeah, this is a fascinating thing. And and the truth of the matter is, uh, when all is said and done, we don't know exactly what it means. Yeah, there are a lot of thoughts about it. Uh, my first experience was I was treating a, a col- infectious disease colleague's um, parent who was visiting from out of town, and they had just this. They got better on Paxlovid, and then a week or so later, they got a little worse again. Nothing serious, but con- clearly had more congested symptoms, tested and became antigen positive again. And we scratched our head and didn't exactly know what to do. And then an old friend, Paul Sachs, who is kind of a prominent infectious disease guy in Boston, he he put on his kind of widely uh, spread uh, podcast. He said, I had a patient that this happened to, and I looked into this, and this is a real thing. And that's the first I had heard about it. My colleague actually sent this to me. Um, and you know, it turns out that about 2% of the people in the Paxlovid trials ended up having this rebound. Um, but when you dig into it, 1.5% of the people that got placebo had it too. So it's probably not something that Paxlovid is doing. It's just something that Paxlovid is not fully suppressing, which brings about some interesting possibilities. Now, um, people say, well, what does that mean? The good news is, is that none of those people seem to be getting really sick and, and they're still meeting the endpoint of avoiding hospitalization and death, even if they have that relapse. So obviously the question comes, well, how do we prevent that? What do we do? And there have been several thoughts put up. I think the most rational one uh, that, that they're looking at right now is, well, do we just need to give a longer course than five days? That happens to be what they studied, just like whatever dose of the vaccine they gave. You have to pick something to study. Um, and it may be that a 10-day course will be just as safe and and maybe rule out some of that stuff. We don't know yet, but that's what needs to be studied. I think less likely is has been put out there is, well, maybe you were treating it too early and the immune system doesn't have a chance to kick in. That worries me. And I've seen that actually uh, people be advised, so let's wait a day or two to take the Paxlovid, and maybe we'll avoid that. I'm not on board with that just yet unless we have a lot more data, because the whole idea is that it's an antiviral agent and you treat early. If we've learned nothing else, we've learned that these medicines do better early. If you're going to, though Paxlovid is EUA approved for five days since symptoms started, that 88% decrease in mortality and morbidity uh, was based on a three-day duration of symptoms. So I'm not a big fan of waiting around to give this drug. I think you give it as soon as you can. Um, but we don't know, um, it, well, we don't see any likelihood of it being more severe disease. We don't know exactly whether this can be avoided. Um, but it, again, it brings about all sorts of things. A few of the people that did have the relapse did seem to have some long COVID symptoms later that, that lasted, you know, uh, brain fog, those kinds of things. Does Paxlovid prevent uh, some of those long COVID symptoms? Well, we don't really know, but but at least in a couple of the ones, anecdotally, that did have that relapse, they went on to develop some of the long COVID symptoms. So way too small a number to really know yet. But uh, so there are, there are more questions than answers about that. I don't think there's anything to panic about it. I don't think, frankly, right at this moment, it should affect how we use the drug. Uh, the the Pfizer CEO, in a very uh, in a very good uh, you know pharmaceutical company CEO comment, said, "Well, you know, there's nothing to prevent in, in the uh, EUA regulations. Just treating them again, and that's what you say when you're a CEO of, of a, a pharmaceutical company." But the FDA didn't snack back and said, "Not so fast, mon frere. Uh, that, that's not that's not good because." We don't have any. We don't have any evidence that those relapses are attached to any severity, hospitalizations, et cetera. And so we don't know that that's effective, and we do not recommend people to do that. I think more likely would be somebody doing a trial, which they actually are looking at right now, of just a longer course to begin with. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, one other thing before we we try to wrap this up, um, we haven't talked about the second boosters and which population they are approved for, and 
whether or not they're needed in somebody that had, you know, the full vaccine series boosted, then got Omicron. Well, finally, a topic that's black and white and we can be certain about. No, um, no, this is probably the one that has been the most controversial from the very first of, of all of this. And that's saying something with, with COVID. Um, when to get the first booster was a question and certainly when to get the second one. I think like anything that's complex, you try to go back to the, you try to narrow it down to things that you do know and then try to take small steps from there. I think the Israeli data are very helpful here, and that uh, they showed that people who were over 60 and people who were immunosuppressed had a mortality benefit from taking the second booster over just the first booster. Now, you know what? That's important. So if you are more likely to survive by taking that second booster, uh, you get my attention. And if somebody's over 60 or if they have an immune uh, compromising condition and younger than 60, then that part is is pretty clear uh, that you're going to benefit from that extra booster. Uh, what is less clear, of course, it is approved for people over 50. Um, and so you don't have to be in that highest risk group as studied by the, uh, the Israeli group. But I, I think the other things you want to look at are... Uh, um, you know, who you're around. It's who you are and 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 what sort of surroundings you're in. Um, if you're if you're really want to avoid um, asymptomatic infections or less severe infections because you live with a 90 year old parent who's immunosuppressed, that's an important factor. Or frankly, if you're a healthcare worker, um, I, I think that we should be more likely to get that to get that shot. Um, uh, for nothing else is that that for a period of weeks anyway and maybe months you would have some protection even against mild infection. That doesn't last very long. That's part of that ever-creeping resistance that these variants are getting against the, uh, this vaccine that's been around for quite some time now. Um, so I think it's helpful, though, for these few weeks ahead, while we're seeing this big bump up in cases, that has its own benefit. And finally, I think there's an elephant in the room that has been way under-publicized um, in general, and that is that this virus is just a very bad thing to get in the first place. Um, we see data that make us a little nervous. If you look at people who need bypass surgery and they had COVID really recently, their death rate is much higher from that bypass surgery going all the way out to seven weeks post-COVID. Then it kind of goes back to baseline. We see big studies from the VA, hundreds of thousands of people where uh, just getting COVID, even mild COVID, even minimally symptomatic COVID, it increases all manner of vascular complications, myocarditis, pericarditis, uh, coronary artery disease, uh, you know, strokes, blood clots, you name it, not to mention some of the diabetes questions out there. It's just probably a thing to be avoided. Uh, in general. We don't know those things. We're only now wrapping our heads around that. And what's pretty clear is these vaccines, even in boosting form, uh, do not show any increased uh, risk. And so I think um, we, as I always like to say, we as human beings are very poor at gauging two different low risks. Um, and we tend to sort of do nothing because that tends to, to beat us the safer thing to do unless we feel bad, in which case then it becomes the safer thing to do something. Um, so in this case, I think people sit on their hands and say, well, I just won't do anything. But I think for a lot of situations, it probably makes sense for many people out there to get that second booster when you really look at the honest uh, to goodness data behind them. All right. Well, I think the, the million dollar question is what comes next? Um, so are we going to have a ventilator shortage in the next few weeks? Are we going to be, you know, canceling elective surgeries in the in the fall? What What's coming next for this virus? Or are we in the end game finally? And yeah. I'll say that with um, every prediction about the virus being, you know, nobody has predicted any of these waves successfully. Nobody's predicted the peaks. Nobody's predicted how low it gets. 
it's been a complete wash ever since March of 2020. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's a great question, given our track record, uh, the, the outstanding nature of that. Um, but I think that what we are seeing settling down is a cyclical, sort of almost more predictably cyclical um, um, pattern that we're seeing in the virus. What I think is uh, the competing things that will determine where we are a year from now will be, uh, number one, how good are we at developing pan-coronavirus vaccines that might not only take out the common cold coronavirus uh, and COVID-19, but also uh, by that cast a bigger net and knock out some of the variants that haven't arisen yet. Uh, and take out some of the fundamental COVID, uh, fundamental coronavirus nature uh, that would prevent some of those vi- uh, variants from being able to take a hold. Um, and there's that. And then, of course, new medications. We got Paxlovid only recently. Uh, there are other things in development that we talked about a little bit. Um, and so new medications will be another thing to really keep this on the flu level and not on the COVID-19 2020 level. Um, so that on one side of the of the uh, of the uh, uh, seesaw. And the other, of course, is what variants are arising. Again, it's not that it's that much less virulent. It's just we have a fair amount of immunity and the virus is creeping against that immunity. If, uh, you know, if three months from now, South Africa, which seems to be spawning most of the recent, uh, you know, variants comes up with something that really is resistant to our immunity in a much for, more fundamental fashion, you could, in worst scenario, turn back the clock to 2020. And that would be kind of the disastrous scenario. Um, it's not to say that to be grandstanding, but it is a possibility. Um, and so we need to keep working on that end that we just mentioned, better medicines, better vaccines uh, in hopes to, to sort of stave that off. Because if it happens, uh, then you kind of go back to the board, you have to start over in the things that you're developing. And that's what we really want to avoid moving forward. Well, thanks again. Thanks for bringing us up to speed on this. Is this the fifth wave? What? I, I don't know where we are now, but um, next you know, wave. <laughs> yeah, the, the next wave, the next generation of, of COVID-19. Um, it was always great to speak with you and, and kind of get a clear picture of where we are. So thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Right Care at Baptist. Remember, if you find the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for CME credit.